Father, as we open in a moment to the book of Habakkuk, and as we listen in on a conversation that a prophet many years ago had with you, I pray that you would show us the vision that you would have for us in your word, the truths, your nature, your work. Reorient our thinking. Redirect our hearts. That we might see you for who you really are. And we might trust you and have confidence and hope in the days ahead. We're grateful. Would you meet us now in the pages of Scripture? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I would like you to open with me to the book of Habakkuk. I would say it's that dusty, uh, stuck-together part of your Bible, but Don got us off to a great start last week with Amos and another one of the 12 minor prophets, smaller prophets as we call them. So, so find your way to the book of Amos. Your neighbor won't give you a hard time if you have to look at the table of contents. That's okay. The book of Habakkuk. Have you ever felt like God isn't making any sense? What is he doing in the world? Why does he allow so much suffering? Why does he allow so much injustice? So much corruption? When will he say stop and no more? Why doesn't he stop it? And if he's good and he hates evil, why does he allow so much evil to exist? Maybe you feel like that. This last year, have you found, found yourself praying something like this? Lord, how long will this go on? How long will we have to endure these unpleasant and discouraging circumstances? I know you've prayed this. When does life get back to normal? Is there a normal to get back to anymore? How long, Lord, until you act to fix the corruptions of society? How long until you heal the contentions in our country? How long will lawlessness reign? Look with me at Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and will you not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored. And justice is never upheld. 
For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Sound familiar? That was written 2,700 years ago by a no-name prophet. It is just as relevant and needful today as it was then. I was sitting, <laughs> I was sitting in a restaurant this week studying. The lady behind the counter says, well, what are you reading? I said, I'm reading the book of Habakkuk. What's that? I said, it's the most relevant thing I've found today. Help me navigate through the mess that the world is today. And she looked at me like, you're kind of weird, man. I can't even spell Habakkuk. So what's going on? And if you've been taking David's Bible intro class, if you were listening to Dawn last week, you know what's going on in the time of the prophets, right? In biblical history. God's created the world, sin came into the world, corrupted it, and we've seen a mess since then, right? So God's plan was to raise up a people who would receive his law, who would be a light of righteousness, a light pointing to God in the world, the people of the Israelites. And generation after generation... Family after family, they went their own way. They rejected the God who had made that covenant with them. And as we come to the prophets, we recognize that this was the time of the kings of Israel, when God raised up kings to rule the people, to reestablish justice, that people would trust in God and they would follow him. And, of course, we know how that went. Uh, we know about David's kingdom, his son Solomon, and, and the corruption that happened in those two realms. And, and after Solomon died and his son came to power, shortly after that the nation was divided in civil war. So that there literally was now two Israels, a northern and a southern kingdom with different kings, different agendas. And, and uh, as you get to the, the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles and your Bible reading plan this year, you're going to read, bad king, bad king. Good king, bad king. It's it's, it's depressing. And as we come to Habakkuk today, Habakkuk lived at a time where a good king exists, King Josiah. You remember him? He was eight years old when he came to power. I told my 11-year-old that last night. He went, wow, that would be fun. And 18 years into his reign, they were renovating the temple and they rediscovered the law. Perhaps the book of Deuteronomy or maybe the whole Torah, the first five books. And they came and they read it to the king. And you remember he tore his robes and says, look, we're, we're doing this whole thing wrong. We're living corruptly. We're acting unjustly. We're, we're going after false gods. And he called for a massive repentance. And he tore down the altars of foreign gods. And, and there was great revival in the day of Josiah. And then Josiah died. And another came to power. And you know what he did? He went right back to the old way. Corruption, injustice, idolatry, false worship. And that's when Habakkuk comes in. Habakkuk has this moment. His book happens when this great king Josiah has died. And now we're back to the old way. Destruction. You read about it. We looked at it there, right? Wickedness, destruction, violence, lawlessness. So there's been a major political change. Political leadership is ungodly and corrupt. People are living in sin. Injustice reigns. Wickedness abounds. People are turning away from God. And Habakkuk, as you heard, cries out for help. Lord, how long is this going to happen? 
How long is this going to go on? Won't you do something about it? And we can hear in Habakkuk's words the, the, the same questions that maybe you and I have been asking. Lord, this just doesn't make sense. Why? I don't get it. And I think that the book of Habakkuk exists in part to help us to know this. What do we do when God doesn't make sense? How do we respond when we don't understand? What do you do when he seems indifferent? He doesn't answer. Maybe he doesn't even care. So in our time today, in the book of Habakkuk, we're just going to have to to zoom through this thing. Uh, It's worthy, certainly, of a slower look. But I'm going to try to give you the overview. And as we do, I want you to see with me five responses when God doesn't make sense. Five responses when God doesn't make sense. Now, the, the, the book of the book of Habakkuk is different than, than a lot of the other prophets. A lot of the other prophets, it's like we, we come in and, and the prophet's preaching whatever God's message is. But this is different. The, the, the book of Habakkuk is different in that it's a conversation between the prophet Habakkuk and God's response. So, so here's what we're going to do, okay? We're going to eavesdrop on their conversation. And I think as we listen in to the conversation between the prophet Habakkuk and the God himself, and, and, and we're in the same position, right? What's going on? This doesn't make sense, Lord. As we hear God's answers and we hear Habakkuk's response, I think we will be encouraged to know how we ought to respond today. Okay, so that's where we're going. That's what we're doing. And uh, just real quick, just a very quick overview. In the first chapter God is God and, and Habakkuk are going to have a conversation. Habakkuk asks him some questions. God responses. Habakkuk asks more questions. And then in chapter 2, God gives his larger response. Okay, so chapter 2 is all God talking. And then in chapter 3, we're going to see Habakkuk respond again to what God has said. Okay, so that just gives you a little bit. Sometimes it's hard in, in our Bibles to know when's Habakkuk talking, when God's talking. So I'll try to, I'll try to make that clear when we get there, okay? The, the first... The, the first response that we're going to see that helps us here, it, it's in the white spaces of the Bible. It, it, this is not like something Habakkuk says or God says, but it's something that Habakkuk models for us that is our first response. When God doesn't make sense, what's the first thing we should do? The first thing we should do is do what Habakkuk did and turn to God with our questions. That's the first thing we ought to do, is turn to God, not away from Him, okay? So, so let's watch Him do that, and then this will kind of draw us into the book, okay? Now, as we, as we jump into Habakkuk, it's almost like we've walked in on this already intense emotional conversation. I, I read to you the first part, right? How long, Lord, is this gonna go on? How long will I cry for help and you won't hear? I cry out violence, yet you do not save. This is chapter 1. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists. Contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. There it is, right? Habakkuk turns to God, says, what are you doing? I don't understand. This doesn't make sense, right? I, I don't get it. And now starting in verse 
five, God's going to respond. So just write in your Bible there, God responds. Okay, because that's not, that's not explicit. This is God's response. Now, here, here's what God's going to say. Okay, look up for a minute. Here's what God's going to say. I can tell you what I'm doing, but you won't believe me if I do. You know, there's a wisdom when God seems sometimes silent to our prayers. Because he knows what we can and can't handle. So God says, okay, I'll tell you, you're not going to believe it. Here's essentially what he says. You think it's bad now? Look with me, verse 5, God's answer. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. That's not wonder like, wow, that's wonder like, ah, right? Because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe if you were told. Say, what are you going to do, God? For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march through the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. God says, you think it's bad now? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to raise up the superpower, the Babylonians, and they are going to go through the earth annihilating everything, including your city. We say, what? God's going to raise up a pagan, God-hating people to annihilate his own people? What are you doing, Lord? Look at verse 12. This is Habakkuk's response in verse 12. Look at this. Habakkuk feels like he has to defend God, right? You ever felt like that? You ever feel like you have to defend God for what he's doing? Look at this. Look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? Oh Lord, my God, my Holy One, we won't die. He says naively. You, oh Lord, have appointed them to judge. And you, oh rock, have established them to correct. Here's where we get that famous verse. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. He says, God, wait a minute. I know you. You're everlasting. You're God. You're, you're, you're the Holy One. You're the one running everything. And, and you're, I know you. You're holy. Your eyes are too pure to look on wickedness. You can't tolerate evil. How can you do this? Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Meaning, he's saying, why are you going to let the Babylonians that are clearly more wicked than us, why are you going to let them win? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, bring all of them up with a hook. They drag them out with their net and gather them together in their fishing net. He says, God, we're just like fish in the sea. The Babylonians are coming in to, to rip us up with the hook and leave us dead on the shore. It doesn't make sense, Lord. Watch, watch in light of who I know you to be. 
Does that sound familiar? Lord, I thought I knew you. Why, why do you allow this? Lord, Lord, I know what you believe. I know what you hate. I know what you love. Why do you tolerate all this? That's where Habakkuk is. Now, it's not explicit, like I said, but Habakkuk models what the Psalms model, what Peter and Paul model, what Jeremiah models, what Job models, what all believers ought to do when God doesn't make sense, and that is we turn to him with our hard questions. Can I tell you this? God wants you to turn to him with your hard questions. He can handle it. And even if you don't understand, guys, there, there is something that happens in our heart that I can't explain. I can't give you the schematic. But hope and healing and encouragement happen when we turn to God in our struggle instead of away from Him. A thousand things go wrong when we turn away from God. Every good thing begins when we turn to Him. And that's what we need to do. We need to follow the psalmist, follow men and women of church history who turned to God in their affliction, who cried out to God with their questions. Not only is that okay to do, the inspired, inerrant, God-breathed Bible models for us men and women who did just that. And we need to follow their lead, okay? So we need to turn to God with our hard questions, okay? So, so there it is. There's chapter one, right? So... Habakkuk asks his questions, God responds, Habakkuk asks more questions, and then look at chapter 2, verse 1. Habakkuk says, okay, I will stand my guard post, I station myself on the rampart, I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me, and how I may reply when I am reproved. (laughs) Seems like he knows what's coming. So there he is, right? There's Habakkuk, you see him, he's waiting for God's response. And as God answers him in chapter 2 verse 2 we see the second response that we ought to have when god doesn't make sense okay look at verse 2 then the lord answered me and said record the vision inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run for the vision is yet for the appointed time it hastens toward the goal and it will not fail so god says here it comes write it down Though it tarries, wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. Here, verse 4. Okay, here it is. Here's God's answer. Behold, as for the proud one, that's Babylon, his soul is not right within him, but, ready? The righteous will live by his faith. There's our second response. Remember, whoops, back up. There we go. Choose to live by faith in the Lord. That's it. Choose by, to live by faith in the Lord. You ready for this? When God doesn't make sense, believe the gospel. Trust him. Lean on him. Take what he says and run with it. The righteous will live by his faith. See, God reminds Habakkuk here, there's only two ways to live. This is not complicated, right? There's the way of the proud, the way of the ungodly. We read about it in Psalm 1, right? The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. You say, what what do the wicked do? What is the mark of every fallen, sinful person, regardless of what their life looks like? They trust in themselves. 
they do what seems right in their own eyes. They become the own, their own arbiter, their own judge, their own, own determiner of what's right. And that's, that's why he highlights here the proudness, the arrogance of Babylon. And of course, it's not just Babylon that's arrogant as a pagan people. The Jews at this time are turning away from God. They're, they're going after the foreign gods. They're reject, remember what's happening politically? Josiah has died. They got another corrupt leader and Israel's going, where do we look for hope? And, and so what happens during the days of the prophets? Well, I know God says I should trust them, but maybe I should get some insurance just in case. So they built altars on the high places to the Assyrian gods, to the Egyptian gods, to the gods of the surrounding people. They said, yes, I know I'm supposed to trust God, but what is it going to hurt if I trust this one and trust this one and worship this one and worship that? And, and, you know, we say, well, hey, we're, we're not idolaters today. You know, we don't keep Buddhas in our bathroom. We're beyond that. But that same syncretism is alive and well today, isn't it? It's so, so easy to say, I will trust God and... But there's only two ways to live, Habakkuk reminds us. To arrogantly trust in self or to humbly live by faith in the Lord. God calls them back here to the simplicity of living, listen, by faith alone in God alone. That is the cornerstone of all believers. It has to be. It's the only thing we have to trust him. Now, now this verse, your Bible might, might bring this out. The verse is actually better translated. The righteous will live by his faithfulness. And don't let that trip you up because you say, well, Paul uses it. He says faith. I know, I know. But what he's getting at, and this is so important that you see this, Living by faith or living by his faithfulness emphasizes that the believer lives in right relationship with God um, by ongoing trust in him and his promises. Listen, faith is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing practice in the Christian life. We believe in Christ alone to be saved, yes. And then we keep on believing. We keep on believing. We keep on believing. We don't have any other way of relating to God but to trust Him. And, and it, is, it is not the Christian life. I, t- tell me if I'm oversimplifying this. In every circumstance of hardship, in every difficulty, God's only asking you one question. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you remember what I say in the word? And will you act accordingly? Will you rest in that? You know, this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. Once in Romans 1.17. Once in Galatians 3.11 and again in Hebrews 10.38. Paul in Romans and Galatians uses this verse to remind us that the way sinful people lost rejecting God, trusting in themselves, the way that that we as God's creation, alienated from Him, come back into relationship with Him, to have our sins forgiven, to be restored in the family of God. There is only one way to do that, and that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's what he says in Romans and in Galatians, quoting Habakkuk. And you know what that means? That's not a new program for salvation. 
God has always called all people to live by faith alone. That's always been the criteria of having a relationship with God. What's interesting is how the writer to Hebrews uses this verse. In Hebrews 10, 38, you don't need to turn there. I'll tell you what, what he does. He uses this verse not to emphasize our justification, right? How we come into right relationship with God. He uses this verse to emphasize sanctification. That once we come to trust Christ, we don't move on to other things. We continue to trust him. And, and, and today, as we would say, things are hard and difficult and we're dealing with trials and, and struggles in life. You say, what's the solution? We live by faith in God. That's it. We keep on living by faith in God. The point is the same. What do we do when God doesn't make sense? We believe the gospel. We trust him. We believe his promise, promises. We lean on his word. The point is to trust in the Lord. So when God doesn't make sense, when life seems out of control, when things seem desperate, where will you put your trust? In fact, can we just, can we just like do this right here? Where are we putting our trust? You only got two choices, right? Myself, him. And so much, guys, so much of our anxiety, so much of our worry, so much of our fear, so much of our depression and despair comes down to this this one issue. We're not trusting him. It's so simple, but it's it. It's the point. Trust him. And, and, and God responds to Habakkuk and says, when, when you don't understand what I'm doing, I want you to trust me. I want you to lean on what you know and trust me. Now, in the next section here, in verses 6 to 19, we see a series of woes. And, and you say, what's a woe? A woe is a particular judgment in the Bible. Okay, a woe is when God says, um, I am announcing judgment on this particular people. So in verses, uh, did I do that? Okay, sorry, that was my fault. Okay, so in verses 6 to 19, God is going to announce judgment on Babylon for all these things that they do. So in verses 6 to 8, he pronounces judgment on them for their violence and bloodshed because they make themselves rich at the expense of other people. And God says, they ultimately will be plundered. They will the ones to be looted. In verses 9 to 11, he again points out their wickedness and says, it will not stand. In verses 12 to 14, he again announces another judgment that they build cities by killing other people and taking over. In verses 15 to 17, he condemns their violence and bloodshed by taking advantage of their neighbors. And he says, the cup that they're making everybody else drink, meaning of destruction, God will put back in their hands one day and they will drink the cup of their own condemnation. They will be disgraced and devastated. So what does God do there? God is assuring Habakkuk that justice is coming. He says, I know how bad the Babylonians are. I get it. And I assure you, there will be judgment. Okay, evildoers will be punished but but look look at look at this. this is so important god wants habakkuk to see that the delay of god 
in bringing justice has a purpose. Okay, let me say that again. The delay of God in bringing justice has a purpose. Because that's what we say. That's what Habakkuk's saying. God, you're holy. You're right. Why aren't you doing it now? God says, wait a minute. There's a greater purpose. Okay? So when God doesn't make sense, here's the third thing I want you to see. We'll look at the verse in a minute. Re- Whoa. There we go. Remember God's goal is to fill the earth with his glory. Remember God's goal is to fill the earth with his glory. Okay? So God says, yes, judgment's coming. I'm, I'm delaying it. You say, why am I delaying it? Because, listen, because delaying justice furthers God's agenda to bring glory to himself. Okay? That's what he's arguing. Look at verse 13. He says, Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that the peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? That took me a really, really, really long time to understand this week. So if you don't get it, I understand. It's not obvious. Here's what God is saying. What happens in history? Nations rise up and nations fall. Peoples rise up and peoples fall. Some people come to power and then they're... By the way, where's the Babylonian Empire today? They're gone. Where's the great uh, Greece, Greek Empire, right? Alexander the Great. Where's that? Gone. Where's the great Roman Empire? It's gone. See, nations come and nations go. They rise and they fall. And God says, that cycle serves my purpose. You say, how? Well, look back at the text. He says, people's toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing. What does he say? People go out, they build nations, whether it's Babylon or Assyria or the Roman Empire. They go up, they work hard, they conquer peoples, they destroy nations, they kill, they fight. And ultimately amounts to nothing. God says it is futility. It is fuel for the fire. God allows the rise and fall of nations, the building up and loss of wealth, to show that all is worthless ultimately. And here's God's purpose. Look at verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. See, that's what God's doing. God plans what he plans and allows what he allows because it furthers his agenda that this whole broken world would be filled with the knowledge of his glory. And we can, we can almost hear Habakkuk saying, okay, tell me how letting Babylon ransack the nations, kill millions of people, destroy our land, destroy our temple. Tell me how that serves your purpose to fill the earth with your glory. And God doesn't answer that part. This is the, this is why live by faith comes first. Cause you know what live by faith means? God doesn't give you all the puzzle pieces so you can see the whole picture. That's what living by faith means. God says, you need to trust me. 
Nations come, nations go. I'm telling you, it all serves the purpose that the whole earth would be filled with my glory. Now, what does Habakkuk not know that we know? What happens in the Babylonian captivity? Nebuchadnezzar hears the gospel. Belshazzar hears the gospel. Right? The people repent. So, See, we can look back and say, Oh, I know what God was... I can see what God is doing. But see, guys, we don't usually have the perspective in the moment of the trial to know what God is doing. And God often doesn't tell us that. We often can't see how God is working out His agenda in the moment. But listen, listen. He is. He is filling the whole earth with His glory. You say, well... How might he be doing that today? Why do our our favorite political leaders fail in corruption? Maybe so we won't put our ultimate trust in them. Why? We spend our whole life putting together a retirement. And then the economy tanks and it all goes away. Why would that happen? Maybe because God doesn't want us to totally trust in our riches. You, you see? You see how this works? But, but may, maybe, maybe the freedoms that we love, the freedoms that we enjoy in this country, why does God erode those? Why does this happen? Maybe so that we will lean on Jesus more than our freedoms. Why, in restrictions and stay-at-home orders, and I can't just go do whatever I want whenever I want, why does God threaten our autonomy to remind us that we're not? That we trust Him for life and breath and everything. And autonomy is an illusion. So maybe God erodes that. Maybe He threatens that. Maybe He, maybe He takes the whole thing down so that we will see that we can't trust in that. And we'll trust in Him instead. So when God doesn't make sense, whether we can put it together or not, we remember God's goal is to bring His glory throughout the nations. And one of the ways He loves to do that is by kicking out everything that you and I love to lean on and rest in and trust in so that we will trust in Him alone. And sometimes that means life gets uncomfortable. But that serves the purpose that we will see clearly. I have no doubt, guys. I have no doubt that in heaven there is a master control room. And if we were to go to that master control room where God runs the universe and and every secret is disclosed, every purpose of His glory, He has out in that control room, He has every atom in the universe and how it glorifies Him in that control room. Because it does. And I think if we were to get a glimpse into that control room, it would undo us. So God says, trust me, just trust me, 
And I have no doubt that when you and I are in heaven, redeemed, glorified, having the mind of Christ fully, we can handle it, that there'll be a replay room. And we will see the triumphs of His grace. We will see how so much more of the brokenness of this world was serving a purpose to bring Him glory and to restore all things. We just can't handle it right now. So He says, trust me. That's, that's the, uh, the third thing, right? That's His goal. Let's look at the fourth thing. There, see, there's one, there's one final woe, right? The woes, the judgments on Babylon. It's in verses 18 to 20 of chapter 2. And this is the fourth reminder. When God doesn't make sense, what do we do? Submit yourself to his supremacy. Submit yourself to his supremacy. This, this fourth thing is this. When God doesn't make sense, be careful. Be careful. Just You don't need to raise your hand. I don't want to call anybody out, but... Have you noticed that when we conclude God isn't making sense, we are incredibly vulnerable? Have you seen that in yourself? I've seen that in myself. When I can't make sense of it, I will turn to things I know won't help me. I will rationalize away from the Word of God to try to make sense. I will lean on my own understanding instead of trusting in the Lord, the way Proverbs reminds us. Guys, we are very, very vulnerable when God doesn't make sense. And that's why we need this point, okay? Here's the point. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 18. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. By the way, uh, God is using a little sarcasm here. He does that sometimes. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, and to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. What's he saying? He, he is calling out the idolatry, not just of Babylon, but of the nation of Israel too. He's saying, what are you doing? You know, the Assyrians threaten, the Babylonians threaten, uh, the country's corrupt, it's unjust, you're fighting your way, you're taking advantage of your neighbor, you're not caring for the afflicted and poor, and what do you do? You turn to a piece of wood to help you? Are you kidding? God says. Now, we have more sophisticated idols today. You know, back then, you know, they would carve an idol out of stone or wood and they would put it up and they would bow down believing that there were deities that could help them. But we're Americans. We're 21st century Americans. We have more sophisticated idols today, don't we? Like freedom. And Google, right? Google solves all your problems. Just type it in. You know, Alexa, solve the world's problems. I, I don't want, I probably shouldn't have said that. All your phones are going to go off. So sorry. I didn't mean, should have thought that through first. Um, right? That's what you do. You Google it when you have a problem. 
you elect the next guy. You legislate it back. And God says, you're going to trust in that to help you? I'll make a confession. I have seen my idols more clearly this last year than probably any year of my life. I thought I was being you know, pretty good at being comfortable in freedom. Oh, you got to stay at home for a couple of weeks, right? Wife's got COVID. We grumble. We complain. Can't go on vacation. And more serious things. So many of you have, have had family members die. Some of you know people that have lost businesses. And God says, when I'm not making sense, here's, when I'm not making sense, don't turn to other things that promise resolution but cannot fill. They cannot help you. It's, it's as ridiculous as, as bowing down to a block of wood and saying, rescue us. I mean, if there's someone drowning in a pool, do you want a lifeguard jumping in or are you going to throw them a two by four? Right? And the sarcasm, the divinely inspired sarcasm here emphasizes the point. We are stupid. Political solutions, lawless intervention. Can we talk about that? I think Christians today are more tempted than ever to overcome evil with evil. Lawlessness for lawlessness. What does trusting God say? What does the wisdom of God say? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the only solution. So if that's not the answer, what is the answer? Look at verse 20, chapter 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. What silences every deity? What, what brings a hush over every idol? What settles the matter in terms of hope and trust? It is knowing that the Lord, Yahweh, is in his holy temple and the whole earth will be silent before him. Because only he is God. Only he reigns. Only he can help us. Only he runs this whole thing. Only he is good and wise. I love what John Newton said. There is only one political maxim which comforts me. And it is this. The Lord reigns. Oh, how we need to believe that. So God finishes speaking. God's done. What does Habakkuk do? And this is, this is, you know what's fun about being an expositor? Just being somebody that opens the Bible and says, I want to know what God meant and, and that's what I need, right? You know what's exciting about that? You can't make this stuff up. You can't make this up. So God ends, he's done. How does Habakkuk respond? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shaganot. You say, what is that? You ready for this? 
he picks up his guitar and he sings. I think, I think this is worth the price of admission today. This was so incredible to see this. What do you do when God doesn't make sense? What do you do when things seem hopeless? You ready for this? You sing. You sing. Oh my God, it's all over the Bible. How did I miss this? You sing. That's what Habakkuk does. He says, okay, if that's the way it's going to be, Lord, he picks up his guitar and he sings. You say, you're making that stuff. No, no, flip to the very end of the book. Look at the very end. Just flip to the end of chapter three. At the very end of the chapter, we get this musical reference. Look at this. For the choir director on my stringed instruments. And I talked to the expert musician in my family. That would be my son, Alan. And he assures me that this is a Gibson Les Paul electric guitar. That's, that's what the stringed instruments is here, right? Okay, we, we don't know what it was. It's a guitar. It's a lute. It's a lyre. It's a heart. It's, you know, it, it's got strings and it makes melody, okay? So that he picks it up. So, you know, that's the only thing we know about Habakkuk. He was a musician. He was a no-name musician. And he hears this. And he says, okay, Lord, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm going to write a song about it. And I'm going to sing it back to you. So he does. He picks up his guitar, his Gibson, or whatever it was. He says, I'm going to sing. And guys, this, this, this is so incredible. When life doesn't make sense, when life is confusing, when it's hopeless, we are going to sing our way to hope. That's what we're going to do. We're going to sing our way to righteous responses. And that is our fifth response here. Our fifth thing that we do when God doesn't make sense. We sing our way to righteous responses. Look at this. You say, what do we sing about? I don't feel like singing. Well, I'm going to give you some ideas here, okay? Look at this. Look at verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2. We sing, first of all, of God's mercy. We sing prayers for God's mercy. He says, Lord, I have heard the report about you. And I fear. God just told him a foreign nation is going to come and annihilate the place. He said he he picks up his guitar and he pray he he prays the song, "Lord, I fear this. I'm scared of this." He says, "Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of years. In the midst of the years make it known in wrath remember mercy." Would you like to see a revival in this country would you like to see the sanctification of god's church and and the the purging of the social gospel and 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 the health and wealth gospel and this you know simple simple happy and jesus wants me to be happy with my life god i don't know what to call it anymore right do you long for that then we need to sing songs to God that call Him to revive us, revive the work. Lord, in the wrath that You're showing, in the discipline that You're showing, in the judgment that we see in this world, please show mercy on us again. That was the message, the preaching of the gospel of God's mercy that Jonathan Edwards preached and George Whitfield preached that brought the first great awakening in America. And we need to preach the gospel of mercy again. We need to sing the gospel of mercy again that God would again show mercy on our land and on our church. We need to pray and sing for God's mercy. That's the first thing we need to sing about. 
There's a second thing we need to sing about. We need to sing rehearsals of God's character. Look at verse 3. God comes from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. You say, I failed biblical geography. What, what does that mean? Those were two locations back in the time of the Exodus where God displayed great acts of power, great acts of deliverance. And you know, you know what he's saying here? We need to sing about times where God acted. We need to sing about times where God delivered. We need to sing in our family with one another, remembering those personal times when God intervened and when God worked and when God delivered. We need to sing that. Look at this. He's back to the text here. He's, um, his splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand. There is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him, meaning God controls all of those judgments and all of those seasons. He stood and he surveyed the earth. He merely looked and it startled all the nations because that is how powerful he is. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are understanding. We need to sing about the greatness of our God. Do you know why we're discouraged? Do you know why we're hopeless? Do you know why we do this? Oh, maybe this is the answer when God is saying, hey, I'm the answer. You know why? Because our God is too small in our minds. And you know what good music does? Do you know what Christ-exalting, theologically rich, robust, doctrinally driven, wonderfully music, mu- musical, do you know what good music does like that? It increases our view of God so that we will see Him for who He really is. And I dare say... That if we, if we have in our minds a view of how holy God is, how radiant He is, how powerful He is, look at the text, how sovereign He is, His greatness of His power and His wisdom, His everlasting ways, if that is in our mind, you won't stumble in anything. You will stand and it'll be okay. No matter what tomorrow brings. You say, how do we do that? We need to sing that. Do you find this? There is something about how God invented music. I don't, I don't even understand it. I can read the text and it encourages my heart. And I hope it does to you, to you as well. To sing a God exulting song does something in my heart that nothing else does. That's why God invented music. That's why we sing it. That's why we ought to intentionally do it as we're seeing here. We sing our way to righteous responses. We sing our way to hope. That's the path. That's what Habakkuk is saying. Sing it. Sing about the bigness and greatness of your God and it'll all be okay. Look at this. What else do we sing? We sing reminders of his coming judgment and his salvation. Look at this extended section here, starting in verse 7. This is a description of God's coming judgment, right? He says, I saw the tents of Kishon under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers, or was your anger against the rivers, or was your wrath against the sea? 
that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation. Listen to the description here, guys. When God comes, your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw and quaked. The downpour of waters swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice and it lifted high in its hands. When God shows up, what happens? The sun and the moon stood in their places, and then they went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear, in the indignation you marched through the earth, in anger, meaning in God's righteous anger when he comes to judge, you trampled the nations, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Watch this. Hang on, it's PG. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. And then Habakkuk puts a Selah. Think about that for a while. When God comes in his awesome and horrible judgment, every wrong will be put right. Every injustice will be addressed. And it will be A horrible day for sinners. But did you catch it? As God comes in judgment to bring wrath and condemnation on those who reject him. Notice also, it says, as we read there, he also came for the salvation of his people, for the salvation of his anointed. That this is a great day of salvation when Christ returns. He comes to judge the wicked and save his people. See, God has not forgotten Remember what Peter says? Why is God delaying? He's delaying so that more and more people will repent and avoid this horrible day of judgment. But we take courage, guys. We take courage that he is coming back, that there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment. There is a day of salvation. And because when we get on our phones and social media and all that, caught up in all this, we forget that that day is coming. You say, so how do we remember? We sing it. We sing it and we sing it and we sing it and it does things in our heart that allow us to say, okay, it's okay, right? This day is coming. It's okay. Jesus is coming back. I don't need to freak out. There's a fourth thing we need to sing. Sing your heart quiet for coming trouble. Sing your heart quiet for coming trouble. Look at verse 16. I heard, this is Habakkuk now, right? Habakkuk. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble. Why? Why is he so scared? Why is he trembling? Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. For the people to arise who will invade. What's he saying? Habakkuk remembers as he's writing his song what God said in the first chapter. Things are going to get worse before they get better. And I bet you've thought about that, right? What do things get worse before they get better? What are the next few years going to look like? What is it going to look like for my kids, my grandkids? What does it look like for the next generation? We start having a panic attack. We start thinking about that. So what is Habakkuk's recommendation? You sing your heart quiet. You sing until your heart rests in the character of God and the promises of God. I I, I will admit to you, I have a playlist. It's called Kavod. 
And when I can't get my heart to that place of rest, I go to that playlist. And there's just a few songs on there. And I don't know, just in God's incredible mercy, those songs tune my heart to rest. And I think that's what Mr. Habakkuk is saying. We need to sing our hearts until they're quiet and resting and trusting. Look at the last thing he wants us to sing about. Sing and worship even when all seems hopeless. Sing and worship even when all seems hopeless. Look at this. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom. You know this part. This is part of Habakkuk you know. Listen to the context now. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. What is he saying? He's saying when there is no human reason to do so. Will you worship? Will you trust him? Will you praise him? Will you turn to him? Because he is the God of our salvation. He is the God of our strength. It's almost 20 years ago. Where's Rusty? Here's Rusty. Almost 20 years ago, Rusty gave me a Stephen Curtis Chapman album with a song on it for who he really is. If we see God for who he really is, it doesn't matter how bad it looks out there. We will draw near to him in worship. We will sing to him in praise because he is the God of our strength. You want it more simple? Though masks create ongoing annoyance and there's no toilet paper on the shelves. Though corruption reigns in government and your political hopes are dashed. Though you cannot visit dear family and friends and your vacation plans were halted. Though your beloved country continues its moral decline and your freedoms shrink and erode. Though your elderly loved one declines in isolation and your children wander from the Lord. Though the future seems so hopeless and uncertain and you wonder if normal life will return. Will you worship him? Will you exult in the God of your salvation? Will you say, yes, That's true. But He is my strength. He is my rock. He is my hope. So it's okay. It's okay. Will you worship Him? You know, Christians have always sung their way to peace and worship and well-being. Paul and Silas in Acts 16, they sang in prison. Luther When he was sick, when he was afflicted, getting chased by people trying to kill him, he would turn to his friend Melanchthon and say, Come, Philip, we must sing the 46th Psalm. And that became the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. 
I read an article this last week, more recent, called Why the Persecuted Christians Sing Psalms in Pakistan. Listen to this. Eric Sowar, a fourth-generation Christian, lives the difficulties that Pakistani Christians endure. Christian people are largely illiterate and poor, disadvantaged and marginalized. They have no political power and thus no ability to bring about change. So planted in this hard place, listen to this, our only hope is God himself. How do they maintain that hope? They sing psalms. That's why Sarwar is on a mission to help Pakistani Christians reclaim a heritage of singing psalms set to indigenous melodies and rhythms. More than a century ago, listen to this, more than a century ago, missionaries expected faith to spread from Christian institutions down to the masses. But that's not what spread Christianity in Pakistan. You know what did? It was psalm singing that helped ignite mass conversions amongst the persecuted people in the area known as Pakistan. And Eric Sorwar grew up singing 70 of these psalms. He grew up in the church when strangers attacked him in 2009 and his parents and wife in 2010. He took comfort in Psalm 18. He calls it the most popular psalm in Pakistan because it represents God's providence, his safety, his power, his deliverance and kindness. In our context of living below the poverty line and facing discrimination and hard challenges every day, it gives hope and encouragement. He says this, the majority of people living in congregations speak only Punjabi. They love to sing psalms of praise and laments and penitence and petitions and prayers. They memorize them by heart. Remember, they're largely illiterate. Only two or three persons in my congregation can read. So the psalms in their own language is their Bible. It helps them in their daily life, especially when they face questions from Muslims in their workplace. You know, a singing Christian is rarely a hopeless Christian. So as we come to the uncertainty of our future, the question to ask kids is not what the Capital One commercial says, what's in your wallet? The question to ask is, what's on your playlist? Because we're going to sing our way to righteous responses. We're going to sing our way to hope. We're going to sing our way to effectiveness for the gospel. And all's going to be okay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you for the example of Habakkuk. And I pray that when you don't make sense, you would help us to trust you. And to heed the message of this book and to sing our way to hope and encouragement and effectiveness for your glory. Father, we do not want to be unfaithful in this hour of church history. Father, help us. We need your grace. We are prone to wander, we are distracted, we are discouraged. Help us, and help us now as we sing our way to hope for your honor and glory. In Christ's name.